Hello and welcome. I'm Uri. And I'm Rifki, and you're listening to Talking Tachlis, the podcast where we talk about Jewish life and life in general. How's it going, Uri? Pretty good. How about you? How was your Passover? Uh, my Passover was good. I was in Teaneck with family, um, not with everyone. Unfortunately, there were, you know, people all over, a bunch of family in Israel, and, you know, not everyone was able to, to come in. But it was really nice. It was really nice to be with everyone. It's a lot of time, but uh, but it was it was really nice to be with family. What about you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, same. I was actually in Cleveland with uh, a lot of my extended family, and a lot of the meal conversations revolved around talking tachlis and some of our topics and issues. So that I'm was... so jealous. I don't think anyone in my family listens. Oh, really? Oh, well, it was a lot of fun. And <laughs> If I got... anyone listens, please uh, send us an email. <laughs> got a lot of nice feedback and interesting thoughts and comments, so... That was great. Do you find, I'm just curious, do you find when you're talking to friends and family that they generally agree with you and think that I'm a moron or do you find it kind of vice versa? Because I actually have a bunch of friends who are like, I mean, you sound like a crazy person, but that Uri sounds like he really knows what he's talking about. Oh, really? They don't, they don't say the reverse? Well, there's definitely some of that too, but I have at least a few, a few friends who are, who are big fans who, who think that you uh, have a lot more, a lot more seicha, a lot more sense than I do. Um, well, I think to be fair, I'm probably saying things that are a little bit more mainstream in our community. Right. Um, to answer your question, it's a, it's an interesting question to ask. A, a bunch of them, nobody said anything mean about you. A bunch of them were very curious to know more about you. <laughs> where did you go to school? Where are you from? Like they're trying to understand where Probably some of Berkeley. these, right? Where some of these ideas are coming from. Um, so that was kind of the the, uh-huh, the main gist of it. Interesting. Okay, I'll take it. Well, Rifki, one thing that I was thinking about over Passover, and I'm curious about your thoughts on it. You see a lot of taking the Exodus story and repurposing it to be more relevant for modern times. So especially in in less orthodox circles, a lot of people will even add things to the Seder plate or have a special Haggadah that broadens the conversation and takes the concept of enslavement and freedom and applies it. So it could be to the civil rights movement. It could be to feminism. It could be to LGBT issues. And this year, I saw a lot of people talking about Palestinian issues and saying that the Palestinians are now the Jews And they didn't say this part, but by extension, the Jews would be the Egyptians enslaving them. And the Palestinians are enslaved in Gaza and in the West Bank. And we have to fight for their freedom and their exodus in the way that we commemorate our freedom and exodus. So I'm just curious, what are your what are your thoughts about that? Right. So my instinct, you know, just listening to that is that that's something that really offends you and really bothers you. Is that an <laughs> what, accurate? What uh, give you that hint? I don't know. I feel like I really get you. Uh, but I, I think actually, I think that really is a compelling way. One of the really important things that we should be doing at the Seder, right? I think the, the Seder and... Um, telling the story of Egypt and really feeling like we're supposed to be putting ourselves in the story of the exodus from Egypt, one of the values of doing that is to sort of renew our our thinking about ourselves as a nation, as a nation that's connected to God, that God did this special thing for us and, you know, we, we always have that relationship because of it. But I think one of the things that we are meant to do in the Torah, you know, that the Bible does tell us over and over to do is that we do have this special responsibility to be more sensitive to the plight of others because remember that God took you out of Egypt, right? Be sensitive to strangers and, you know, be good to other people. Um, because of this. So I think that instinct is a really positive one, that instinct to look at the at Yitzhak Mitzrayim and to, when telling the story over at the Seder, to think, you know, how does this apply to people today? How is this something that's still relevant in our lives today? Are there people who are going through this sort of metaphorical or literal, but um, slavery? Um, the instinct to me to say that the Palestinian people are going through the exact same thing that we went through is 
to me, not exactly accurate, right? They're not being enslaved. Um, but I think the, I think there is something there basically. And I'm not, I'm not offended, you know, as a Jew and as a descendant of the Israelites who actually went through this particular thing, that doesn't offend me because I think if there is value to that, it's something that we should look at. Of course, you know, I, I think I would, you know, the straw man argument is, oh, so you're saying that the Jews today are like, are like the Egyptians? No, I'm not saying that, right? If anything, I'd be saying, you know, um, the modern day Egyptians plus Israel plus international community plus all, plus Hamas, right? Or all of the factors that sort of put, um, put the Palestinian people in this position of being so uh, subjugated. I don't know if that's exactly the right word. Um, there are a lot of other factors, but the idea of saying like, hey, the Palestinian people are in a really tough position and we as a respons- we have a responsibility as people who went through the exodus to sort of think of them and see what we can do to help, I think is not a crazy instinct. Right. I, I hear what you're saying. I don't disagree with your main point. And I was thinking about it a lot. I was trying to figure out if my... If my first reaction to hearing that is to be upset and and angry, why is that? Why do I really feel that way? And is it justified? And I guess there's two sides to it. One is the oppression side of it. And so the Jews, we were oppressed in Egypt. And now there's another group that's oppressed the Palestinians. It could be other groups throughout the world or history that we want to make the comparison to also. And I think that is less problematic, but that in itself can also be offensive to somebody who went through a trauma and then somebody else is comparing their situation to that trauma when it doesn't seem to be the same situation, doesn't seem to be as bad, let's say. That could be offensive. Just like, I'll just, off the top of my head, if somebody used a Me Too hashtag, but it was a man, and it was about somebody who made fun of him or something, I think, or I'm just as an example, a lot right, of people right, be right. upset because you're taking right. a different issue. It, it makes it like you're minimizing Yeah, you're the minimizing the original right. issue by, by your own less yeah. severe case. And, and to be fair, right, to, to sort of jump on that point and totally agree, what happened, the, the worst thing that happened to the Israelites in Egypt was not that they were enslaved. That's pretty awful. But the worst thing that happened is that babies were stolen from their parents and thrown into the Nile, right? That is not happening in Gaza. I mean, in, in obviously there, there are genocides that happen today and, you know, we could talk about, you know, Syria or things like that at a different time, but there are real things that are happening. But to say that, you know, oh, this person is going through a tough time, it's just like Egypt, that is obviously not really right. a fully accurate well, statement. That's part of my point. But then I was going to say is I actually think that the other side is, is the really offensive part where if you take... Uh, a historical story and you take the victim from that story and now that victim which is still around today is now the oppressor and the villain from that story that's particularly offensive and so in this so the case that i gave with the exodus if the jews are now the egyptians that's really offensive in the same way that you hear i think more and more people comparing the idf and israel to the nazis that's particularly offensive because the Jews were the victims of the Nazis. So not to call them the Nazis right. against the Palestinians is, to me, pretty outrageous. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. For some reason, it doesn't bother me. It doesn't make me sort of angry or offended. I think what, it more upsets me because I think that that's a totally egregious understanding of what Nazism was and what the Nazis were actually doing. It, it but is it's ridiculous. not particularly bad right. because it it's the exactly. Jews being, vict- being exactly. villainized instead right. of... Right. It's more uh-huh. the idea. But, you know, sort of on that note, I think it, it, that's a good time for us to transition away from the Passover conversation and directly into our topic for today, which is the Palestinian protest movement that is going on right now. Um, 
every Friday for the past two weeks and should be going, I think, for the next six weeks is um, a mass protest along the Gaza border with Israel. So far, thousands of Palestinians have taken part in these protests. And this includes men, women, children. These protests are very explicitly called nonviolent, though, as we'll get into, it's not 100% clear exactly what that means and what that looks like. So far in the two Friday protests, there have been more than 30 Palestinians killed and hundreds have been wounded uh, by Israeli sniper fire. Hamas, as the ruler of Gaza, say that these protests are against a decade-old border blockade by Israel, but Israel argues that the Islamic militant group Hamas is using the protest as cover for trying to infiltrate the border. Right, right now there's a border fence separating Gaza and Israel. They're trying to infiltrate the border fence and attack Israelis. So Uri, I think these protests are pretty intense and I think they're only going to be gaining in intensity in the next few weeks, culminating in what we call Israel Independence Day and the day after, which is what Palestinians call Nakba Day, which is the day of Catastrophe Day, which is the day that thousands of Palestinians um, after the 48 war had to leave their homes in what is now Israel. And I think that these these protests are a little bit confusing to us, right? Because the, there there's a lot of different statements flying around, right? Israel is saying that there's there's violence being used and that's why they have to, to they ha- that's why they have to shoot to kill and the Palestinian side and including a lot of journalists on the Palestinian side are saying that's not true right the people being killed are not actively engaged in violence at all um so there, there's a lot of ideas and a lot of facts being thrown around and I think it's hard to tell sort of what's actually happening so what we wanted to do today is we wanted to sort of approach the issue take a step back and try to understand a little bit what's going on and at that point try to understand is what's happening good is Hamas doing the right thing? Are Palestinians doing what they should be doing? Are is Israel reacting the appropriate way? Only once we kind of kind of understand the facts can we really be able to engage in those questions. I think that's a good introduction, and I agree that this whole thing can be very confusing. Honestly, it's confusing for me, and I consider myself to be relatively knowledgeable about Israel and the situation, and I'm reading the news every day, and I'm trying to read as many sources as I can, and it's still confusing. It's confusing to, to understand mainly what is actually happening, but more so why is it happening. So the first question I would ask is, why are the Palestinians in Gaza protesting? What do they actually want? So as you stated in your introduction, something that you hear a lot from Hamas is that they're protesting the 10-year-old blockade on Gaza, where Israel and Egypt um, restrict all kinds of things going in and out of Gaza. Now, that's already confusing because the name of the protest, the official thing that they're calling it, is the March of Return, Return to Israel or what they would call Palestine, which is not Gaza and the West Bank. That is what is what is called Israel now. So if it's the March of Return, what does that have to do with the blockade of Gaza? You could say it's both, and that would be valid. That would make sense, but that's not what they're saying. They're not saying it's both. They're either saying one or the other. It depends on which context they're in, which context they're speaking. Right. It's also that Hamas is saying that the demonstrations are meant to sort of draw attention to the harsh conditions in Gaza, where, as you said, there's a restriction on the movement of goods, there's restriction on movements of people, right? A lot of people who live in Gaza have never left Gaza. They've never been able to leave for sort of any economic opportunity for education. They have no options. But when they say that they're trying to draw attention to the harsh conditions, there are also a lot of people who have been interviewed who say explicitly that what they're trying to do is return to their homes, what they're trying to do 
And uh, the Hamas leadership even talks about, you know, what we're trying to do is we're trying to return to Jerusalem. And as you see over and over in these protests, there's a lot of pictures and a lot of videos of people trying to cut open the fence, right? right. Trying to so, break down the fence. So my question is, what what is, what do you think is their primary motivation? Is it to get better human rights in Gaza or is it to walk through the fence and walk into, I don't know exactly where they would go if they could because their grandparents' houses are probably not there anymore, but in their minds maybe that they still are there or they're just going to go into whatever house is on that spot and just set up camp and like, right. which one is the is so the main I, motivation? I, I don't know. I mean, I think, and I, I want to hear what you think, but I think, I think it's a lot of things at once. And I think ultimately at the end of the day, what it really comes down to is they just want change. A lot of people living in Gaza have never really known another life, right? They remember what their parents tell them and their grandparents tell them about how they used to live here. They used to have a house there. They used to own land here. And these people have never known a life in which there's any sort of economic security. They don't feel like they really have actual physical security. They've lived under Hamas rule. since. Like They're in a really difficult position. And I think what they're really ultimately protesting is just change. They just want something to happen that makes their lives better. The idea that, you know, we talk about unemployment in America as something that like, yeah, you know, people deal with it. It's a real problem. The idea of unemployment being almost, I think it's 48% 50%, that is unfathomable. There is no economic opportunity for these people. And I think really, ultimately, that's what it comes down to. There are a lot of mini pieces, right? They're angry at Israel. And, you know, that that's become sort of the, the big PR move at this point. Because right now, the entire international community that's focused on this is focusing on the fight between Israel and the Palestinians. But they're not focused on the fight between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority, between uh, the Palestinians and Egypt between the international community. There, there are so many other factors that are being let go of, and they're focusing on this. Right. So I think that part part of what makes this confusing, and I can only imagine how confusing it is for people who don't have as much knowledge about the region, about the situation, is that people see Palestinians protesting. They see Palestinians being injured and killed by the IDF. How many How many people in America do you think understand the difference between the Palestinians in Gaza and the Palestinians in the West Bank or understand the difference between the the power structure of Hamas versus the power structure of the Palestinian Authority and the fact that they hate each other and actually kill each other when they get a chance to. I guess another question that we can ask and try to answer is what is actually happening here? And I think, as you said, you know, if half the population of Gaza is unemployed, so, you know, this could be a productive use of their time to come and protest against Israel. When you think of it that way, I think the numbers are actually a lot lower than people may have expected or that I think Hamas had hoped for. So 15 to 20,000 protesters showing up when it could have been half a million, um, I think is kind of disappointing. And then I, that leads me to wonder, does this really represent the people of Gaza? Is this really what they want? Do they really just want to, do they expect, do they think it's realistic that they could walk up to the fence and make a hole in and walk through and just return into Israel as this thing is called the March of Return? Um, or are more most of them more pra pragmatic? We're just not hearing from them because they don't have freedom of speech and Hamas is running the show and telling their narrative. Right. To me, it, it seems like the people who are coming here 
you're right. Like they don't actually expect that they're just going to be allowed to just walk into Israel and they're going to be able to do these things. I really think they're just desperate to a certain extent. I think no, I think just... some of them did show up. I mean, I just saw quotes of people came and they're like, yeah, I came because I'm going to return with I my think, family I think they're, into they're Palestine. they're lying to themselves and they're lying. Oh, you know? that's something else. Lying but, to themselves is not the also, same thing. they're also as... lying out loud because they're, they're, for them, they have nothing, right? What they're trying to do is make this show of force, right? Every time, right, there's also in all these articles and all these journalists talk about, you know, every time a person throws a rock, right? They're not going to hit a sniper. These snipers are hundreds of meters away. Throwing a rock is just a sign of sort of saying, hey, I have power too. I can I can show my anger in another way, right? It's like it's like giving someone the finger, right? You're not doing anything to anyone. You're not really hurting anyone, but you're, you have to sort of give yourself a little self-respect and right. saying, okay, fine, you have all the power and I have nothing, but I need to show that I'm something. But so I, think, I need to show myself that I'm something. I think there's a lot more happening than just throwing rocks, um, which gets us into what is actually happening. Right. What Israel is saying is very different than what the Gazans and what Hamas and what the journalists on the ground in Gaza are all saying, right? Israel is saying there are people there with guns, right? They're, they haven't released any footage and they have released footage of a few other things, but they're saying there are people there with guns and therefore we, we, That's we have to That's one of the them. things Israel yeah, saying. Yeah, of saying course, 100%. Things. Yes, 100%. They're also saying there, there were bombs. There are people trying to plant bombs to blow up parts of the borders so that people could come in. Right. And, they're, and, they, and there are pictures of those bombs. Yes, exactly. Well, what we if they know, walk up to the fence and start cutting a hole in it. Right. So that's the, that's I think kind of the interesting question. Interesting is like a weird word for this, but cutting a hole in a fence is not an imminent threat. So according to international law, I think it's illegal, right? Well, and to it's kill not it's like only that. not an imminent threat if you're putting a magnifying glass on that uh in, in that exactly. situation and not exactly. looking at, okay, but what's going to happen five minutes right. from because now? Because the, the nearest settlements to the Gaza border, I think like a mile or a mile and a half away, if you can actually cut a hole in that fence, then a lot of people and can And a hundred people run through. Exactly. Then that's actually dangerous, right? So, so it's it not imminent, imminent but you know, it's, it's well, a half imminent? hour, right? Exactly. Yeah. But that is incredibly dangerous. I think to me though, like when we say what is actually happening on the ground, it is clear that there are people at these protests who, when maybe it's 10%, maybe it's 20%, maybe it's 5%, people who are actually actively trying to open this border at maybe as an act of protest, maybe to get back to their own house, maybe just something. But that is a real threat to Israel. I think the question at that point that we both sort of have, and I definitely feel like I have it, is like, that doesn't seem like a protest against the treatment of Gazans, right? If I were running a nonviolent protest, and a lot of the a lot of the spokespeople for this movement have been trying to compare it to the civil rights movement in America, if I were actively trying to create a nonviolent protest movement, showing that my civil rights, right? I have no I have no ability to really get a job, I have no ability to really grow a business, I have no ability to go get an education, right? All of these things are really being blocked. What I would do is I would organize. 2,000 people, 10,000 people, 20,000 people to literally, right? Israel says you can only be 300 uh, meters from the fence. I would organize all of these people to hands up, right? Show that you have no weapons on you, show that you are not a threat in any way, and literally just walk to the fence, chanting the entire time, walk to the fence. Then try, for for Israel, try to mow down all these people, try to mow down 20,000 people because you don't want them near the border, and then the international community will be absolutely sympathetic to your cause. Well, it's too bad you're not the leader of Hamas. I, I've been thinking <laughs> that be for a, a while. they a with you. Yeah. No, I mean, seriously, honestly, if what they're really trying to do is draw attention, they should not be doing any of these things. A lot of people want to say, sort of like, you know, it's this small minority of protesters, but at the same time, it's not like the 
other people who are not engaged in violence are doing these other things, are engaged in nonviolent protests the way we sort of think of what active nonviolent. They're cheering them on, right? Every time someone throws a rock, even though, again, no one's going to be hurt from a rock, they're cheering, they're chanting, and the chants they're saying are about going back to Jerusalem, going back to their homes, breaking through the fence, right? Entering Israel. This is this to me does not feel like a, a movement that's really trying to, to to force the world to look at the inhumane conditions in Gaza, which again is I think a real problem and one I think we do need to focus on. Right. Well, I guess part I think part of the reason why the reality is the way that you're describing it is because we're getting so many mixed messages. Like we're here in America, all we're not there. We're not at Gaza. We're not in Israel. We're not at the border. We're getting what the media is telling us. And the media, to a large extent, are themselves getting mixed messages, and they're choosing which of those messages to send out to the world, to send to us. So you have Yehia Sinwar, who is the leader of Hamas. I think he is the newly elected prime minister of Gaza, whatever that means exactly. Free and fair elections, probably. Right, I'm sure. And on the Hamas official Twitter page, they posted it in English, Today, we took to the borders to convey a message to the world that the free people of Gaza will continue their peaceful demonstrations. So that's what you said before. They're saying we're doing nonviolence. Right. So when the American media or the world media sees that, they eat it up because they want that to be the case. I think right. most people probably want that to be the case. So they'll quote that and they'll say, see, they're, they're doing nonviolence. But now I'm going to play a video from the same Yehia Sinwar. And I personally don't speak Arabic. So if somebody speaks Arabic and says that this translation is wrong, please let us know. But this is the, the subtitles I'm reading that are on the video that I'm seeing. And let's see what he says when he's speaking to his own people in his own language and not in English. <laughs> We have come out today and we will come out also in the next few days. Our people and our boys will surprise the entire world with what they have in store. Let them wait for our big push. We will take down the border with Israel and we will tear out their hearts from their bodies. So that doesn't really sound nonviolent to me. Does it sound like that to you, Rifki? Definitely not. And I do think it's disturbing. And uh, it's hard, right? Because I think all politicians kind of say different things to their population and to the rest of the world. But this is to obviously... That extreme? Right. This is obviously really disturbing. Because I think I definitely, and I think many of us, sort of want to believe that this nonviolent protest is the start of a different future for Hamas. But, I mean, obviously we have to look at their history. We have to look at their charter, right? They, and look they, at what they're saying. Right. And they're still saying today, doing. you know, these awful, awful things. So I think it is really sad um, and very disturbing. So Rifki, as you said in the beginning, they're planning to have a few more weeks of these weekly protests leading up to Israeli Independence or Day or the Nakba, depending on whose side you're on. But it's the 70th anniversary of the founding of Israel. So it's a big year. It's a big anniversary. And what scares me um, and depresses me is that this march, this protest is called the March of Return. And what does return mean? It means return to their grandparents and their great-grandparents' homes in what is now Israel proper. They're not calling it the march for statehood. They're not calling they're not calling for a Palestinian state. So a lot of people in America and in the West think that the solution to this regional problem is give them a state and let them ha- have their own autonomous state. I don't think that is what they want because that state 
under any agreement would basically be Gaza and the West Bank. Even if it's 100% of the West Bank, their state is not going to include Israel proper because that's Israel and there wouldn't be two states if, if you got rid of Israel. The problem is, if they're calling it the March of Return, even if they got a state tomorrow that had the most generous proposal that was ever laid out by like an American president or mediator, that would not fulfill right. would what include. they're trying to get right now in these protests. So I don't think the state is even what they want. People talk about in order to get the state, they're going to have to compromise and let go of the right of return. I think it's the exact opposite. I think they're much sooner going to say, we want the right of return and we'll let go of the state. They'll do that much sooner than they'll so say, we I, want the state and we'll let go of the right of return. I think it's really hard to say, especially as, as you mentioned, right? They don't really have the right to free speech. People don't really have the right to say what they want to say. And Hamas has never let go of the right of return. And that's absolutely something that they're very, very clear about. So I think They don't have say, free speech and therefore we don't know exactly what yes. they want. So I think to say, if, if you go up to random Palestinians in the street, I would suspect, though I don't know, I would suspect that many of them would say... Okay, you know what? If you give us the opportunity to have a thriving economy, to have free travel, to be able to import goods and be able to really like change our lives around, we will give up on the right of return. I do not need my grandfather's olive trees that bad. I suspect that really ultimately that's what people would say. But I think people feel stuck and they feel overwhelmed and they feel like Hamas is the only Hamas is the, is the leadership that's trying, right? Hamas is again great PR stunt making themselves out to be the ones who are really fighting on behalf of these regular people. And and Hamas is turning this into a different conversation, a, a, I think a, a false narrative to the regular Palestinian people in Gaza. And I think that ultimately Gazans just want the same thing that we all want. They want to live safely. They want to live freely. They want to be proud to run their own country and be in control of their own state, their own livelihoods. I think ultimately that is more important to regular people. I don't know for sure, but that's what my, well, that's what I, I want imagine. that to be true also. And so it's also very frustrating that I haven't seen any of the mainstream media publications, New York Times, Washington Post, whatever, calling and having op-eds saying, what can we do to get rid of Hamas so that the Palestinian people can actually say what right. they want and have freedom and then possibly achieve statehood. Yeah. Nobody's think, saying that. I think it's still too... At this point, I think the protests ended up being much bigger than people thought it would be. Oh, when you say bigger, you mean a bigger news story yes. or more people no, no, showing no, no. up? No, no, no. I think they, it ended up oh, being a bigger... Oh, it's turning into a... Of course. Yeah, but I think that's interesting and I think that, that speaks to sort of... Um, but none of those... How many of those New York Times articles mentioned that Hamas is right, exactly. hurting their think, own people meaning and the reason needs I, to go. I, I think it's not on the editorial page or the op-ed page is because they were not actually expecting this to be so big. I suspect that I suspect that over the next, even though it, it saddens me to say, I think the next few weeks are going to be fruitless, except for sadly more lives will be lost. And I think it will be sort of bigger and bigger uh, a news story. And I think we're going to start hopefully to see a little bit more nuance in the conversation. I hope so. And we'll leave it at that. Thank you, as always, to our listeners. And again, we really, really, really want to hear your feedback. Um, we had a little bit of a break for Passover, but we're right back in there. Can't wait to, to keep the conversation going on Facebook. There's been a little bit more conversation lately, which I really enjoy. Um, and Uri, is there anyone else we have to thank? Well, as always, we want to thank Drive-In Productions for sponsoring this week's episode and for letting us record in their gorgeous studio. And we'd like to thank Triple Threat Trio featuring Rage Brigade. They are the official band of Talking Tachlis, and they give us our theme song. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.